Last week, the shiny red briefcase was handed over to our new Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. That's right, it's the budget, the government's big economic event where it lays out what it plans to do with its money this year. This is the first budget of a new decade. The first in almost 50 years outside the European Union. And the first of this new government. But many of the Chancellor's promises were overshadowed by new measures to deal with the coronavirus. With the stock market hitting a four-year low, the outbreak could push us into a recession. This virus is the key challenge facing our country today. We've seen the markets descend into chaos this morning uh, over fears of the impact of the coronavirus. You know, this is one of the worst days that we've seen uh, for the FTSE 100. So, what do we know about the government's economic plans? Are they doing enough to avoid a recession? And in focusing on coronavirus, what other crises could they be ignoring? There's been plenty of green rhetoric in the budget, for sure, but the Treasury decisions continue to drive the climate emergency. Look outside. In the real world, we're still living through the slowest economic recovery in a century. The Weekly Economics Podcast is back for a post-budget special. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. I'm so pleased this week to be joined by two very special guests. First up is Alfie Sterling, NEF's very own Head of Economics. Welcome, Alfie. Hi there. Cheers. Thanks for being with us again. And also on the pod is super special guest Karis Roberts, the new executive director of IPPR, the Institute for Public Policy Research. Welcome, Karis. Hello, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so we're going to dive into the budget, folks. And I've been really looking forward to this because I've heard a lot of kind of headline things, but I feel like I haven't really understood a lot other than lots of money to tackle corona. And I'm sure there's lots more. The first question, though, is about the coronavirus, of course, because those are the headlines. So the topic that overshadowed the budget was how we're going to fund paying for the impact of the virus, particularly on the economy, on the NHS. There have been fears in the financial sector that the spread of coronavirus will tip us into a recession. Alfie, can you explain why that might happen? So, yeah, I mean, I guess there there are two main ways in which which it's likely to really dampen economic activity. So one is... um, through the really obvious thing, which is that people, if they have to start self-isolating, won't be able to go to work. Um, and so that's what we kind of describe as the supply side of the economy, um, the ability of, of companies and individuals to produce and, and sell goods. Um, but then at the same time, as people aren't able to go to work, um, they also won't be able to, they won't be earning an income or they won't be out spending in shops mm. um, if they're self-isolating as well. So that's the demand side of the economy. So actually, the effect of an epidemic or a pandemic as it is now will be to shrink both sides and we won't be making things and we also won't be buying them um, as well. And that effectively is when you get into a recession and the economy starts to shrink. So the Chancellor has said that he will work with the Bank of England who just cut interest rates, I think, around this to try and avoid recession. Is that going to work? Is that a good thing? So I I mean... I think there are probably there are probably several layers as to, to working out whether it's a good thing or not. So there's a kind of the simple thing, which is are they um, are they doing anything? Because <laughs> in the, over the last um, ten years, we've actually seen a not enough coordination or intervention from from government and from the Bank of England, um, you know, into kind of preempt these sorts of problems. Um, and so the first thing is they are doing something, and that's and that's actually uh, quite good and 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 isn't a given. Um, so the cut in interest rates is is one piece. The bit that's less talked about is this new scheme the Bank of England has introduced, which is um, cheap credit lines, cheap credit to companies on the condition that they pass it on to the rest of the economy. And that's a, um, a relatively new thing. And interest rates are sort of exhausted these days. There's not a lot we can do there. So it's this new facility that's going to be more important actually going forwards. 
And then on the government side... Could you just say a bit more about what that is, this, this new facility, yeah, so Cheap Credit Rates? It's called the Term Funding Scheme. And the idea is that um, that the Bank of England, the central bank, is able to lend on to, to commercial banks, but on the condition that they pass on the interest rate, this low interest rate that, that they get from the central bank, they pass it on to the people they lend on to. Okay. So it's a way of just ensuring that interest rate cuts really reach the people that need to get cheaper um, credit. But the end goal there is to keep companies afloat. So it's to make sure that um, that companies, particularly larger companies, actually can keep can basically keep cash in their bank accounts. They can borrow if they need to from uh, from the scheme, um, and that keeps the economy um, moving. But you can sort of think about the response to this recession or or trying to mitigate it as you can either try and help companies or you can help people directly. And at the moment, I think there's been quite a lot of quite good stuff actually in supporting companies, but really very little in helping individual people, particularly those on the lowest incomes, people like the self-employed, people that earn less than £150 a week, who will now struggle to access um, welfare and sick pay if they have to self-isolate. But wasn't there something in the budget around covering statutory sick pay for people or was that still aimed at companies? So the sick pay bit is is the bit that aims at people, but there's a big gap in it. So what they've announced is um, you can now access sick sick pay quicker if you're eligible and that's a good thing but unfortunately if you earn less than 116 pounds um a week you don't have access um to sick pay um and at the moment all you have now is to go back to universal credit Mm. and we know there's huge problems there five week wait all the rest of it so that's one problem the the kind of the eligibility to sick pay hasn't been expanded so lots of people two million people are missed out um but also sick pay is really low it's a really low payment it's about 94 pound um a week that's the second lowest in europe um, and so, yes, we've kind of made it a bit easier for those who are eligible to get it a bit quicker, but it's also not enough. Um, and that'll be a problem as well when once people, um, you know, income start to start to buy and they can't buy, buy basics. I knew it was too good to be true. This is why I didn't want to come here. I was just like, this all seems great. And now you're taking that away. Right, let's soldier on. So the Chancellor promised new emergency money for the NHS to deal with the virus, billions and billions of pounds. Um, and so it looks like the coronavirus has loosened the government's purse strings a little bit. Karis, what do you reckon? Well, they've certainly put some money into uh, into the NHS to deal with the crisis, which obviously was, you know, the most important thing in a situation like this is that you keep uh, the public healthy. So that's extremely important. There are some kind of bigger long-term problems, though. So it's all very well giving the NHS money, but if actually we've been taking, not giving the NHS enough money over the past 10 years, which has been the case, then it's arguably the NHS won't actually have the capacity to spend that effectively and to be able to deal with the crisis anyway. Um, not that there's that much that the the Chancellor could have done, but we do have to recognise what 10 years of austerity has done to our public services and our ability to deal with a crisis of this kind when you've been kind of whittling down and whittling down what public services can do Mm. but I think on the kind of more general point about public spending the Chancellor was looking really for an excuse to be able to to kind of open the purse strings and coronavirus has given him that and it would be really interesting I think to see how long that can extend for and if actually it, it just turns into a kind of a higher spend economy it's worth saying however that I think you know yes he's spending more than previous conservative governments have been that doesn't mean job done particularly when we think about that question of austerity and what's been happening to our economy over the past 10 years and increases in spending on health um, mean that actually other departments and particularly local government are going to be having to spend less over the coming years and for uh, services like social care uh, which is managed by local government that's really really problematic. 
Okay, again, more complex than I had first imagined. Quick question on the NHS uh, kind of boosted budget, though. Do you think post the coronavirus that will continue or that we'll see kind of back into the underfunding and austerity project? Um, well, I think the NHS has actually had its, uh, you know, it's been relatively protected compared to other departments. So I don't expect the spending to, um, for the NHS to kind of be the part of government that we most need to worry about. But like I said, it's about where, what's happening in the rest of the system. And actually, if for years you kind of starve social care or you starve um, public health budgets, for instance, of funding, then that's going to have knock-on impacts for how much money the NHS needs further down the line. And so it's about the kind of the bigger picture rather than just the individual NHS picture. Mm. So following on from that then, a lot of the newspapers have taken this opportunity to describe the budget as a massive spending splurge and the end of austerity. Is that true? No. What? God <laughs> that's that's a short, short answer. Mm. Um, it's definitely a kind of a step change in the amount of uh, spending, but I certainly wouldn't say it's the end of austerity with so many departments uh, still spending far below what they were in 2010. Mm. Um, and even, you know, reversing many of the cuts um, or kind of at least getting back to the spending levels we were in 2010, that's not accounting for um, the growth that we would have seen had we not had austerity over that time period. Mm. Alfie, what do you think? Has this changed the rules about how the government's going to spend money? Well, no, and I think I think it's, it's worth also, um, I think Karis is completely right that it's not an end to austerity. And it's worth just to kind of put a bit of flesh on that because there are three different, you can think about government spending as three different types. So there's like, there's investment in big projects. And that was what featured loads in this budget after he talked about coronavirus. There's um, day-to-day spending by departments like the NHS, like social care, like education. And then there's this kind of reactive spending. So it's things like is spending more on benefits, for example, if people become unemployed, um, mm-hmm. the type of spending that's that's cyclical. And just look at each of those in turn about with regard to austerity on investment. Yes, he's pretty much returned things to pre-austerity levels. So that, that you could argue. Department's about, it's about a quarter of the way. Yeah. So we've gone about a quarter of the way in recovering the damage that was caused. And on, on welfare, on reactive spending, it's, it's hardly anything. So all the measures that took a long time for him to talk about, sick pay, you know, all the rest of it, things we were talking about earlier, they all come to a total of about half a billion pounds. Mm. That's how much he's putting in. If you look at how much weaker the current benefit system is compared to the 2010 system, it's about 34 billion pounds. Mm. So we're talking about a tiny, tiny amount put back in in a crisis to try and protect people compared to the huge amounts that have been taken out quite irresponsibly, given we knew a crisis was going to come at some point. Mm, Okay, so let's stay with, because I'm interested in this whole idea of like, what are the things that people are missing? What are the other areas of the budget announcements that we should be paying attention to? So I think think one of the... um, things that it's because it's very easy to think oh well you know it's obvious that this has to be a coronavirus budget it's the impending crisis and to an extent that's completely true and and there always had to be a big portion in the budget responded to that but it's worth um bearing in mind that the reason or one of the reasons why um, epidemics um, are dangerous is because they take us by surprise so it's because we haven't, we didn't know it was coming. Um, and that simply by virtue of being uncertain and the shock, that's what causes a lot of the damage. Now, there are other crises we know about. And if we wait so long that they also take us by surprise, they will be just, if not more, severe. Uh, so think about climate change, for example. Mm. If that starts causing the severe weather incidences that might create similar shocks, um, not only will they be just as severe, but they might end up being a lot more permanent as well. Epidemics do go away, um, you know, eventually. 
um, but climate change won't. And that's why I think, as just as you said, it's really important that that this budget and actually every budget from now on needs to be addressing those long-term challenges as well. Climate change is one. I'd say inequality um, is another one. Mm. And did did it address those things, Karis, in any way? Well, you know, there were some measures in there, particularly um, on kind of the green side and we do have to recognise that when we assess the budget. But I think that it really did feel short, fall short when you think about the climate emergency. So, for instance, there were widely anticipated... Um, everyone thought they were going to have a new policy on spending for retrofitting homes. Um, and yet we didn't see that there. What we did see was huge investment in roads and tarmac, literally talking about laying down tarmac. Um, and that those sorts of measures taken as a whole really doesn't look like a budget that is on its way to net zero by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we've worked out that you need about £33 billion of additional investment, uh, green investment, to reach just the government's net zero target of 2050. Uh, and this budget just fell very far short of that. The other big kind of missing gap for me was that this was supposed to be the budget where the Conservatives, um, the Conservative government set out its agenda um, and in particular speaking to all those new voters uh, that, mm. that they've gained, particularly in the North, and this was the levelling up agenda um, in quotation marks. Um, and from what we saw, I think it fell very far short of that, both in terms of uh, steering clear of some of the tax rises on the wealthy that had been trailed and may have had quite an impact in terms of fairness um, and in terms of um, funding the public services that we know are so crucial to people's lives, particularly the disadvantaged. Mm. So did this budget then, in terms specifically in terms of speaking to those new voters, one of the things we've talked a lot about on the podcast in the past is this idea of like, a failing or lack of conservative ideology or whatever and like did this did this budget have a have a message have an ideology that kind of that spoke to that gap or not i think it's certainly true to say that this was a very different conservative budget yes, to previous yeah, budgets. There's so definitely yeah. a shift in direction, um, a shift in favour of um, investment spending for sure. Uh, that's definitely true and even recognition that that would uh, increase productivity in the economy, which hasn't always been the conservative line. Um, so that's definitely the case. But you know, there's been some people talking about was this uh, a shift leftwards for the yeah. Conservatives. I don't think it's anywhere near as simple as that because if you're if you're building roads and rail but you're not paying attention to um, poor poorer families' incomes or if you're not paying attention to the public services they rely on, uh, then that's not really a kind of one nation speaking for everybody budget or a shift leftwards. Mm, yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I mean, I think there's in one way it's changed almost everything, and that's the fact that politics has now shifted right across the board to look at not whether government should increase spending, but what it should spend on. So there's now a new consensus that basically there has to be greater government intervention, and this budget showed that. I think that's that's a really it's hard to understate how important that shift is because we're now in a different world to the last decade where the argument was about the size of government, um, and that's actually very interesting. I think, and it will take some time for everyone to kind of really digest that. But where um, politics now moves to is who benefits as a result of government intervention, who, you know, on whose behalf is government doing things. And I think in that territory, um, we're seeing more of the same. So the priorities were businesses, uh, people that, you know, people that run businesses um, and the poorest and through most of these policies, whether it was long term or short term, tended to be missed out. So I've already talked about sick pay. 
Um, tax cuts, uh, for example, they cut NICS, national insurance contributions, and the rhetoric around it was around was supposed to be around helping low low earners. Um, but because they failed to do anything on universal credit, actually the tax cuts are going to disproportionately benefit the best off, um, the highest earners benefiting about 10 times more um, than the poorest. So on the question of distribution, it was very much more of the same um, skewed towards those who are already better off. Okay. All right. So let's stay with some of the specific things. I was going to ask you about the tax cuts for the workers, Alfie. I was so excited about that, but nope. <laughs> Shut that one down. I've got loads more on that. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you can carry. You can say more. I would like. I would like to hear a bit more about the tax cuts. I feel like this is something that I've heard people talking about. In like, you know, they're cutting business rates and also taxes for individuals. And I think, in particular, on the worker side of things, no one is having these conversations about who's not included in that. And you know, in in the budget specifically. Um, uh, Rishi mentioned the you know gig work workers in the gig economy and precarity. So, I feel like the word on the street is that those people are included. But is that not the case? Yeah, he talked about them a lot. But yeah. If, if you listen to what he actually said, it was it's okay. You can claim universal credit, uh, um, which in substance isn't isn't that great. That's not great. No. Um, particularly given you know our welfare system is is thirty four billion pounds poorer than it than it was ten years ago. Um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of tax cuts, again, there were there were the kind of um, there were long and short term measures. So most of the stuff around business rates was part of the responding to coronavirus uh, response. It was temporary tax cuts to keep those businesses afloat. Um, and of course, you know, it is important to keep businesses afloat because they do employ people as well. So it's not yeah, like yeah. these, you know. Um, and um, but then there were longer term measures as well. And the two most important were um, lifting the threshold at the point at which you start paying national insurance contributions. Mm. Um, and that intuitively feels like something that helps low earners, but it actually helps the richest more. And one of the main reasons for that is if you're on low income, you're invariably on universal credit. It subsidises people on, on low pay. Um, and um, and if, you, if, you're, if you get more in your take-home pay as a result of a tax cut, you lose 75p in your universal credit for every pound earned. So you only keep 25p, whereas if you earn much more, you'll keep the full pound. Um, so it's a lot better for people on on higher um, on higher incomes. But then there was also a move on um, entrepreneurs' relief, which is a was an existing tax cut for for people that sold their businesses um, and made a lot of money from it. And actually, that was something which is going to hit um, the higher paid more, and is a good thing. They haven't completely got rid of that tax cut, but they've reduced it a bit. And that was actually something that um, is quite a positive move, um, particularly from a government uh, from a conservative government. Mm. I think one of the interesting things about the proposals on business taxes as well is how much of this, um, you know, if we try all these these approaches now, is that going to lead to a more permanent situation? Uh, so um, the Chancellor announced a review of business rates, which is going to take place over the year. Um, there'd been some discussion in, in the trails that, that business rates might be replaced with a land value tax or something, but instead there's going to be a discussion about what should happen to business rates over the year. Of course, having just cut business rates for many, many businesses, it might be that uh, the Chancellor kind of in the next budget decides to to keep that permanent. We, we don't know. But those are the sorts of things that might be on the table now that coronavirus is um, is implement, uh, causing some of these measures to be put into place. Hmm. All right, let's talk about fuel duty. Apparently that's been frozen. The Chancellor says that that will benefit people outside of London. That sounds good. Is that going to happen? Is that a good thing? I'm clutching at straws, guys. Give me something. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, I don't think I've got anything <laughs> positive to say about this. Sorry. Oh, gosh. I think it was. this was one of the most disappointing parts of the budget for me. Um, we've had 
is it 10 years of fuel duty freezes? Um, and people were expecting that uh, this government would actually put an end to keeping on freezing the fuel duty and instead raise it in just in line with inflation. And instead, we, we didn't see that. Uh, fuel duty will be frozen again. Um, some changes to uh, red diesel, which is uh, a kind of a diesel with less tax applied, which certain uh, people in sectors like agriculture can have. Some changes, but again, not kind of going the full way in terms of uh, what the environmental thing would be, which is raise raise fuel duty essentially. Um, again, you know, it's. There's a missed revenue there. It's also just not going in the direction we need to in terms of the environment and changing behaviour and how we how we travel around the country. Mm. This is probably a really stupid question, but what is the government's vested interest in keeping it frozen? It's a big um, political bellwether, I think. Uh, so for them, if you look at the other things that they were careful about, there was stuff on duty on whiskey and on various types of alcohol. These are these are very visible taxes that people see and people feel, and certain types of voter who might drive uh, mm. unlikely to live in um, or less likely to live in the centre of cities. Um, they're more likely to be hit by tax increases of that kind. So I think it's really an attempt to keep those voters on side. Mm. I think there is an important point on fuel duty, though, which is that it's it's not a straightforward um, increase or not increase and in, in one's right and one's wrong because the distributional effects of fuel duty are quite complicated and can be quite regressive as well. So it'll, it'll hit people uh, who often aren't that able to pay and particularly people that haven't got access to good public transport um, and rely on their car um, to, uh, and on low incomes. So I think fuel duty rises, yes, or or some nature of increase in tax on consuming polluting fuels, but you have to then have a strategy alongside that to have subsidised high quality uh, public transport that people have got access to or other alternative modes of, of transport as well. So it, that's the sort of um, intervention on tax which needs to be accompanied with other measures as well. Mm, wasn't that part of kind of, of what happened in France with the yellow vests and Macron trying to bring in... Was it... Was it, fuel? it was exactly that, yeah. Yes, I knew <laughs> I'd read that somewhere. Wow, I'm impressing myself. Uh, but yeah, that what I'm, what I'm saying was he, he brought that in. It impacted people disproportionately. They, they took to the streets. Yeah, and it was all the points Karras was making as well. It's kind of a, you know, it's a, a political signal. Um, it's one of those totem taxes. Uh, okay, fuel duty aside, there were a few announcements of some green things. Alfie, what were they? So there was a, the, the main item was a big increase in public investment. Mm. Um, probably around the order of magnitude of about eight, nine, ten billion pounds, um, although we're going to get more detail um, later in the year. Part of the problem, though, as, as Cass already mentioned, is a lot of that actually went into tarmacking roads. And so it's kind of the figures are slightly um, blurred. But there were moves on um, on uh, electrification of transport, charging points um, for electric cars, um, and also to try and even out the tax people pay on energy, whether it comes from gas or electricity, because people currently pay a higher rate of marginal rate of tax on energy from electricity um, uh, rather than from from, from gas. Um, and that's not helpful from an environmental point of view. So there were m- small measures in there that were good. Um, Karras has already mentioned, though, that um, you know if, you, if you're adding 8, 9, 10 billion of investment, that's a good thing. But really, we know it has to be a lot higher than that. You know, Every year, we need to be investing between 2 to 3% um, of GDP um, in infrastructure to get to zero carbon. That's about kind of 20 to 40 billion pounds. So it's, you know, it's, it's, two, it's double, four times as high as what we're seeing. Um, but I think the really big question around the environmental investment was also, again, it's this question of who benefits, where is it going to go first, how does this marry in with levelling up? 
Um, and for that, we don't really have a lot of the answers yet. That we've been promised a spending uh, spending review, um, probably later this year, certainly um, coming in the, in, the, in the near term. Um, and it's that process that will decide where a lot of that investment goes. And until we see the detail of that, at the moment, it's just a big number aggregate, or in fact, possibly not quite big enough. Mm. <laughs> but that's all really we can comment on. And where it goes, who it benefits first, that's really important indirectly for environment because you have to get somewhere with legitimacy you have to get to zero carbon legitimacy but also from the point of view of leveling up inverted commas um, supporting those that most need support outside london and if this budget is anything to go by it's not likely to be very evenly distributed the gains from that well this is the thing i think the pattern if there there were lots of surprises so expanding the size of the state was one um, properly responding to coronavirus with uh, coordination of the bank of england another one really positive things and could have come from governments of all different colours. But the one thing that wasn't a surprise, sadly, and which is a, a pattern throughout, whether it was short-term or long-term measures, was not enough support for those that most need it, those in the lowest incomes. And if that's something to go by, then I'd be worried about about the allocative decisions of, of this investment as well. So we so we also know that um, the, the, kind of the, the local economies with the highest density of, of jobs that rely on high carbon sectors, so, um, you know, coal, gas, uh, steel... Um, there are about 40 local authorities where there's more than 30% of jobs that rely on these industries. And they're all clustered across the northwest, the Midlands, and they almost map on exactly into you know, close proximity to all the new seats the Conservative won um, in December, This kind of these holes in the red wall. Interesting. Um, so there is a, re- there's a big political onus uh, on the Conservatives to address this. And there's a, much more importantly, the real onus economically, because we have to shift our industries to make them less carbon intensive. And these are the areas that will be hit hardest. And we have to have an answer to that and a solution and create good jobs for, in those areas. Caris, the onus. Yeah, I think it's worth saying as well that a lot of these decisions about where the infrastructure will go aren't yet made, so we can still try and persuade the government. And one of the things I think we need to uh, watch out for is... You know, the UK, of course, administratively is split up into regions, but people don't really experience their life through regions. Um, And actually, the economy is much more granular than that. So we need to make sure that levelling up isn't just um, about, you know, does the northwest have the same level of growth as the southeast? It's about looking at the people within within those areas as well and making sure that the opportunities that are created when there is public investment are uh, are useful for people and ordinary people in their ordinary uh, daily lives. Mm. Okay, okay. Those comments sounded summative. Is that the word? Is that the word? Nodding. Summative. Summative. I don't. Mm. I've heard that word, but it doesn't mean it's you not. Heard the word sum- doesn't mean it's not I the right word. Summative. I think summative too. Thanks, Karis. I'm sure someone will at us if it isn't. <laughs> um, great. So those comments sounded summative. Anything <laughs> I said summative that time. Anything else that you guys think that we've glaringly missed when we've been talking about the budget? Well, for me, I guess maybe this is more of a political point, but I think it was really noticeable that this was the Chancellor's first budget about a month into the job, faced with a huge coronavirus outbreak. Um, and it, to be honest, you know, there were, there were problems with the policy, but it was an impressive performance. I think it was an impressive performance from the Conservative Chancellor, and that throws down a bit of a challenge to the opposition um, on how they respond um, to a very confident Conservative Chancellor who's uh, spending lots of money. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what the kind of the politics of that is and how it plays out over the coming months. Mm. Yeah, and I think, that's, I think that's really spot on. It was... He, you know, it was a really confident performance. And I think probably the main thing I'll just add to that is, is something we discussed earlier, but it's it's how quickly 
all the other actors in politics, whether it's opposition parties, Labour Party, Green Party, or or NGOs and other organisations, how quickly they cotton on to the fact that politics has shifted in the way that it has, and it's no longer about, or not, it's no longer as much about the size of the state. It is about who benefits, and the speed at which people cotton on to that, I think, will be really important as to how effective opposition is um, over the next few years. So we need to be asking different questions. That's right. Interesting. Okay, that is all the time we've budgeted for this week. <laughs> Hit the button. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Alfie and Karis, for being with me this week. Uh, if people want to hear more from you, where can they go? How can they find you? Where can they read your stuff at you? All that stuff. Uh, so on the IPPR website, uh, my contact details, and I'm on Twitter at Karis Roberts. Lovely. Alfie? Uh Yep, New Economics Foundation, um, all our stuff's up there, and Alfie Sterling on Twitter, I think. All right, that's it for this week, lovely listener, and our budget special. We'll be back with a new series soon. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly EconPod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you soon.